Back in 1995, I suspect many of us uh, who are here are online probably went to the theater to watch a movie called Apollo 13. And uh, that movie was nominated for nine Academy Awards, but more significantly, in 2023, just last year, Apollo 13 was selected for preservation in the National Film Registry by the Library of Congress as being, quote, culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. And I think it was probably all three. But I'm wondering if any of us who went and saw that movie might remember the quote that was attributed to the mission director, Gene Krantz. Anybody remember that? You'll remember it when I say it. Failure is not an option. Faced with grim odds against bringing three astronauts safely back to Earth in their crippled spacecraft, Krantz tells his team, failure is not an option. Well, Krantz did not actually utter those words, the statement did represent the attitude of the of the of Krantz and his colleagues during that Apollo 13 crisis. As that mission teetered on the brink of disaster, the flight directors continued to lay out option after option after option, but failure was not one of them. The astronauts were returned safely home. I think failure is not an option could sort of be our national slogan a cultural mantra. Failure is not an option because we have the material resources, the technology, the the initiative, the economy, the, the moral authority, even the military might to overcome, to achieve, to succeed. But it is not necessarily a good thing because it is now the deadliest sin in our culture, it seems, to admit failure, to admit weakness, to admit wrongdoing. It's better to cook the books, use steroids, claim the election was stolen, anything but not to admit failure or defeat. The American dream of progress onward and upward doesn't really permit the option of failure, does it? But my favorite theologian writes that this optimism that we seem to live by does not seem very genuine or authentic these days. He writes, it is programmed promotional, rhetorical optimism, an increasingly desperate determination to think positively, even while the data of despair are all around us, in the air we breathe, in the food we eat, in the god-awful television we watch, 
and the poverty, crime, and chaos, and violence in many of our cities. I'm guessing that some of us might argue that that is too bleak of an assessment, but it is an interesting sign of the times that even as we are prone to say we're number one, that we live in the the greatest country in the world, that more people uh, are far more depressed, 10 times as many people are clinically depressed as they were 50 years ago. In his second letter to the church in Corinth, the apostle Paul takes a markedly different approach, a truthful approach. When talking about his own failure, speaking of an apparent affliction as a thorn in his flesh, he says, three times I appealed to the Lord about this, that it would leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is made perfect in weakness. So I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. So I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities for the sake of Christ. For whenever I am weak, then I am strong. Do we hear that? Paul is content with brokenness, with weakness, with failure, even the failure of God to release him from his thorny problem because this failing testifies all the more to the grace of God, he says. What was Paul's thorn? We we don't really know. Some suspect it was a physical disability. Some suspect it was a a sexual deviation. Uh, Some suspect it was mental illness. Presumably, though, the church that was in Corinth knew what the problem was because Paul didn't have to tell them. And presumably, that's because everybody in the church in Corinth also had a thorn or two to deal with. And so do we, right? There are things that we've prayed for again and again in our lives, and yet we struggle. Uh, Our reading from uh, the Gospel of Mark also recites a failure. First, the failure that Jesus experienced in his hometown. And second, Jesus' expectations that his disciples are going to face failure. Matthew 13 and Luke 4 tell us almost the exact same story that we heard read From Mark 6, Jesus has been moving from one success to another in his ministry. Sure, the religious authorities are getting mad, but but Jesus is healing everybody. And he's drawing crowds, and and he's achieving success. Uh, The disciples, they've witnessed Mark 
uh, they witnessed Jesus, rather, stilling the storm. They've witnessed Jesus healing the Gerasene demoniac. And just before he leaves for his hometown, he also raises a synagogue's leader from apparent death. It's a little murky the way that it's written, but that he's just success after success. And now he's searching for some rest, and he goes back to his hometown, Nazareth, And at his hometown synagogue, Jesus begins to preach in the synagogue. And as in other places, the people in that synagogue, they are astonished. But this time, they are astonishingly appalled. How dare this local boy, Jesus, presume such authority to tell us what we should do and how we should change. And then they say, isn't this the son of Mary? Now that question, if you don't know it, implies an insult. Um, The insinuation that Jesus' paternity is in question. You see, Jewish custom was to refer to uh, a son by their father's name. So they would have said, isn't this Jesus bar Joseph? Isn't this the son of Joseph? To ask, isn't this the son of Mary, is a way of asking, who does this bastard think he is? Now, I'm not just trying to be provocative in saying that, I'm actually trying to convey what Scripture would say if it wasn't sanitized by the translators, because this is exactly the extreme reaction that these people had. According to Luke, they take Jesus out of the city and want to throw him off a cliff. They're in a homicidal rage. It wasn't, oh, isn't this Jesus, the son of Mary? No, much more intense. It's interesting then that it's after this unambiguous failure that that Jesus commissions his disciples to go out on a missionary activity. Why didn't Jesus send them out after all his spectacular miracles? But then in verse 11, Jesus' instructions indicate his expectation that his disciples will fail. If any place will not welcome you and they refuse to hear you as you leave, shake the dust that is on your feet, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So if the disciples had not learned by watching Jesus experience failure, Jesus is making it clear right here that his disciples will experience failure, that failure is likely. So he he provides them a ritual of failure. We might call it a sacrament of failure. When you fail, shake the dust off your feet and move on.
Regrettably, uh, many Christians today see failure as an embarrassment, as a signal that your faith or their faith is not strong enough. Listen to this. This is one Christian writer. If God is your focus, failure is not an option. Straight out of Apollo 13. When you are doing something for God, there is no way you can get it wrong if you let him guide you. That's an overly optimistic view that flatly contradicts what 2 Corinthians says and what we're reading here in Mark 6. Jesus doesn't say failure is not an option. He's saying failure is likely. But don't misunderstand me. I think too many of us, and I'm not just talking about us in this room, but, but too many of us who call ourselves Christians are sort of content to be failed disciples. Unwilling for a multitude of reasons to actually try to live out of the teachings of Jesus. Tony Campolo, uh, uh, as a great speaker, I heard him once uh, in person, but uh, he's an evangelist out of the Southern Baptist tradition, and he was uh, speaking at a Southern Baptist convention, right? And he says this, I open by saying, I don't know why you're worrying so much about the inerrancy of Scripture. After you prove that it's inerrant, you're not going to do what it says anyway. And then he says, wouldn't it be better if you agreed that the Bible didn't speak the truth all the time and then maybe you could get out of some of the obligations? Well, that's not necessarily the type of failure I'm talking about. What we're talking about is is the failure to do what Jesus is calling his disciples to do, even if failure is likely. The example of Jesus and the words of Jesus to us in Mark 6 are try and fail, but don't fail to try. Try and fail, but don't fail to try. And I think that uh, phrase could help us all with a little uh, self-assessment. It certainly convicts me. Are we really trying to be disciples? Are we trying to follow Jesus' teachings? Or are we simply failing to try? That question reminds me of a statement uh, made by uh, G.K. Chesterton, He was a great uh, writer and apologist for Christianity, and he wrote this. He says, the problem with Christianity is not that it has been tried and found wanting. The problem is that it hasn't been tried. As we go from this place today, I pray that we will try and fail. Because failure is likely.
when we try to follow Jesus. Amen.